I hope that there's a song of praise on your lips and in your heart because of the mercy of Christ. I hope you know that today. It's hard to believe that we're going to be wrapping up the book of James today. If you've been in our series, you've been following along, we're, we're actually coming to the very end of the book today. We're actually going to compress kind of two messages into one. Just we're going to give uh, Pastor Doug Fern an opportunity to speak next week. And so we're just adapting a little bit to make that work. In today's text, we're going to see James kind of uh, put this all in, in proper view, if you will. He instructs them to have a long-term perspective, remaining patient while they place their trust in Christ. He encourages them to bring everything to God through prayer and praise and to stay on mission until his return. I've entitled today's message, Living Out Real Faith in Real Life. And really, that could be a, sort of a summary statement for the book of James as a whole. Let's follow James now as he directs his focused attention back to the believers here. Look with me at James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that no one may fall under condemnation. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we gather this morning in, in honor of just how holy and mighty you are. And Father, we are so aware of how holy and mighty we aren't, and yet we are so thankful for that mercy of which we just sang that allows us to come before your throne. We thank you for the cross of Christ and the, the empty tomb and, and the salvation offered for those who would put their faith in Christ. Father, we commit this time to you now, and we ask you to work and to move and to, to speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to see what we need to see, to hear what we need to hear, and to respond appropriately. And we pray for East Campus today. May you just bless the time there, too, as they're in the Word and worshiping together. Would you have your way? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. James says, be patient then, brothers, or, or therefore. It's kind of a connecting idea here. And it's in light of the impending doom and the judgment of the wicked rich that we talked about last week. He, he's really shifting. And it's, it's his brothers, instead of the you and your, as he spoke about when he was ad addressing those uh, who uh, were wicked in their wealth, he pulls the believers in that have been facing oppression from these wicked rich people. He pulls their focus back in and, and directs to them now. And he says, listen, be, be patient. Anyone here patient? Come on, come on, anybody patient? Hurry up. 
Nobody's patient? Okay, good. So we're not patient. But he says, be patient. The Lord is coming. It will be okay. At that moment, everything will be right. In a moment, we're going to consider timing and, and perspective. But it's, it's, it's as though James is saying here, slow down, take a breath. Let me remind you of how this turns out. Be patient. And he cites the farmer uh, and, and the rains. In, in, in their climate, their early rains were October, November, and then the late rains would have been April and May. And he's saying, remember how long that can seem between those times, but it's okay. I mean, and he's, he's saying, you know, we understand most climates are relatively predictable. We have some sense of, of what we can expect in different times. Years ago, I took some adults and students down into Mexico to do a, a mission trip. And that night when I crawled into that, that steel bunk that had all these springs, that many of which were broken, I, I, it, it wrapped me up like a burrito. It was like I was trying to sleep in a canoe, and I'm going, I can't do this. And uh, one of the other students along was having the same struggle, and so he and I went out and we slept on this concrete pad of where they were building a, a new building. And the next morning, people were like, aren't you worried about the rain? I'm like, we're in Mexico. <laughs> it's not rain season. It's okay. But the locals were like, oh, don't sleep out there. The critters will get you. Anyway, we did anyway. We lived through it. But we can predict certain climates. We have an understanding. And James continues, understands that it's, there's time between the planting and the harvesting, but it's worth the wait. Patience is a must. The time will actually come. And it'll be okay. How ridiculous for the farmer to get impatient and to begin to rip out these plants in frustration because they're not bearing fruit. What would any of you think today if you left here and you, you drove west on I-80 and you looked out into a farmer's field and saw him out there with his big John Deere harvesting the corn that isn't even there. He's impatient. He wants it to happen. But we understand it's, it's ridiculous. You have to be patient. There will be a harvest to reap. There will be a new season. There is great hope. That's what James is pointing them to. Consider the words of Paul in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. He speaks of waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or, or to the church in Philippi in, in chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, or to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Be patient. We await this. He continues there in, in, in verse 8 of chapter 5 of James. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So first be patient. Now we see establish your heart or stand firm. Be strong. 
Strengthen your heart. Find strength in the Lord. He is coming soon. How wonderful it is when we can cast our cares upon God and just trust him. The psalmist says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and we know this one well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying, establish your hearts, stand firm, and let, let that peace guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, in truth. You can endure what you're facing if you let your hearts be established in Christ. Find encouragement, find strength, find support, power to establish your hearts in the truth of Jesus Christ and the certainty of his return. Maybe you can hear the people of James Day replying to this, but James, we have been mistreated. We've been abused, we've been slandered, we've been stolen from. It's, It's really hard. Again, the words of Paul in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I love what Erwin Lutzer says about that. He says, it's a promise, not an explanation. It's a promise, not an explanation. Establish your hearts. Put your trust in the truth of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon once said, if a man were to attack me with a knife, I would resist him with all my strength. And count it a tragedy if he succeeded. Yet if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, I welcome both him and the knife. Let him cut me open even wider than the knife attacker because I know his purpose is good and necessary. Isn't that great? How are we doing with trusting with establishing our heart or or standing firm and being strong in the truth of Jesus Christ and saying, God, we trust you. And God, I put my faith in you. I establish my heart in the truth of Christ. I think James has got a great pep talk for the depressed and the discouraged going here, doesn't he? For the impatient and for the frustrated. He's saying, be patient, be strong, establish your hearts. But he also warns against negative responses. We see his third instruction there really is no grumbling. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Why this instruction, James? I mean, we, we, we have to understand what's going on here. I mean, certainly they weren't mad at each other. He's saying don't grumble against each other, brothers. Yet human nature is interesting, isn't it? I'm sure you have never misdirected your frustration toward the wrong target, have you? You're mad at your boss 
and you come home and yell at your child for the littlest thing. Or you feel betrayed by a friend, so you take it out on your husband. Work goes terrible and the dog gets kicked away for greeting you the same way he does every other day when you walk in the door. It's a sad scenario, isn't it? It happens in the home. It happens at school, it happens at work, it happens with friends. It happens in the church. Ministry doesn't go like it was planned or someone complains and criticizes and, and the whole thing turns negative and tensions build to the point where the next thing, even a tiny thing, causes an explosion and we snap. Which, by the way, creates more issues, doesn't it? He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now, that's a qu question to answer there. What do you mean judged? What judgment? And we already pursued this in chapter 4 to some degree. Uh, for the believer, we know that because of the, the mercy and grace of Christ, there is no condemnation for us. Jesus took the wrath upon himself that was due to us. And, and by faith, we understand there's no condemnation. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope you know that is good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the spirit, or for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Maybe you just need to pause this morning and just take a breath and go, there's no condemnation because I'm in Christ. I hope you can say that. Rather, James is referring to the discipline that comes with our behaviors, the judgment. Notice he says that the judge is at the door. The one who belongs in the judgment seat will enter at any moment, and he can handle it. You remember back in chapter 4, there was that judging of one another. No, the judge is coming, and he can handle it. Think about it. For, for James' audience, who were they mad at? They were mad at those rich oppressors. But apparently they were taking their frustrations out on one another and grumbling at each other. And James is saying, no, don't do this. On the occasions that I've done marital counseling, when there's strife, Quite often, I just have to remind the couple, say, listen, it's the two of you against the stresses. Against the pressures of finances or, or raising kids or whatever it is. It's the two of you. You have to come together and say, no, we're not going against each other. We are a team and we're going to go together against this. And he's kind of saying the same thing to the church here. Don't grumble against one another, brothers. Yes, ministry is tough. Yes, you're going through a lot, but don't take it out on one another. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
If it helps, look back in biblical history. Think of uh, even ones like Joseph went through so much, but God never forgot about him, did he? What about the prophet Jeremiah? What a, what a hard life, just grieved by sin. And then, then he's thrown into this muddy cistern and he literally is kept there in the mud. Hebrews 11, verse 37 says, They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. James is saying, listen, people, I understand that you're going through a hard time. I understand that this is difficult, but, but you've got to understand the, the biblical perspective on this, and you've got to understand how faithful God is and how he will be with you. He will carry you, and consider those great ones who have gone before you. Remember those who have suffered so much for the Lord. And you and I need to stop here and say, how is that for a stop complaining and toughen up kind of message, Right? Yes, it's rough for you, but think about those who had it worse. And think about how God never, never failed them. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Those aren't moments when we feel blessed, are they? We don't stop in those moments and go, oh, oh I'm so blessed. Right? James is saying, listen, if you're having a tough time, you are not alone. He's saying, be patient, establish your hearts, do not grumble and complain. And then verse 12, we see another instruction. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's saying, listen, don't swear by heaven or by earth. Now we say, is James talking about foul language here? Not exactly. Could he be warning against foul talk that comes from frustration? That's possible. It really seems to be referencing the idea of an oath here. Verbal proclamation with a divine witness. Jesus taught similarly in Matthew 5 when he said, Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely and shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Saying, just say what you mean and mean what you say. And James might have been speaking against this zealot type of language here. This guaranteeing that you're going to take actions. The, may God kill me if I fail to get revenge on so-and-so. Or as surely as there is a God in heaven, I will. And if you remember from our series in Acts, we had those 40 fools who, who vowed not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. 
And they either died of, of dehydration or starvation or they broke their vow. Maybe we think of taking the Lord's name in vain here and I think there's far too much of that. Sloppily calling on the name of the Lord. But what's the main thought James is delivering here? I think in light of this, he's saying, listen, don't lose control over temporary trials. Keep your focus on the return of Christ. Keep, keep the big picture in mind here. James continues in verse 13, if, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Notice that he covers both ends of the spectrum here, doesn't he? He's going from one to the other. Trouble and delight. During times of trouble and hardship and trial, uh, prayer, extremely significant, but that's not situationally abnormal, is it? When, when things are going bad and when and things are a mess, it's not hard for us to, to pray or to remember to pray. It's pretty normal. Still significant, but it's normal. I'd venture to guess that this instruction is commonly followed by, by many. Most believers will click, quickly go, go to prayer when feeling weak or frustrated or they're in trouble or they feel helpless or they sense that they have no other option. But many unbelievers will do the same, won't they? And those prayers might be, God, if you are there, God, if you are real, God, if you hear me, then would you do this? Or, or God, if you do this, then I will truly believe in you. Or I promise that I will do all these things, all these vows that they probably won't keep. And Dr. Paul Cedar says, too often in tough situations, we ask God why, but we would do better to ask God what? Lord, what are you saying to me through these trials? Father, what is it you would like me to see or to learn in this difficulty? God, what action would you like me to take in light of this? But nonetheless, these, these prayers in times of trouble, they're a cry for help, and, and that's appropriate. If we're struggling, go to God with it. But notice that he, he goes to the other end of the spectrum here. If you're cheerful, if you're happy, if you're filled with joy, if you're satisfied, sing praises to God. I've heard phrases like, preacher, I don't sing. It's just better that way. No one needs to hear me sing. Right? And I understand we've not all been given beautiful voices. But my response to that is, do you sing along with anything else ever? Or do you shout when your favorite team scores? Genuine vocal testimony of the grace of our God is a must. Genuine vocal testimony of the grace of our God is a must. If you know Jesus Christ, you have reason to rejoice. You have reason to sing. And, and for you to be a recipient of that mercy and grace and not be one who would proclaim it. And maybe it's not through song. Maybe you're that one that's just yelling amen. Or you're quick to tell of the goodness of God. 
in any opportunity you can get. Genuine vocal testimony of the grace of our God is a must. Well, okay, preacher. No, sorry. (laughs) There's something in the act of praising that positions our hearts, doesn't it? It resets us back where we need to be. In, in light of the stress or in light of the joys, we still have to get in that proper position of understanding God is God and we are not. And, and if we're in hard times, it's okay, he's God. And if we're in great times, it's okay because he's God and he's the one that put us there. It positions our hearts. Things get a little tougher here in the passage. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what do we do with this? Let's break it down a little bit. Is it, first of all, a question of seasons? Maybe. Uh, What's the sickness about? This term sick, it means weak or feeble or lacking energy or strength. First of all, it could be physical. We see that in Scripture. Luke uh, chapter 4, they brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and Jesus healed them. In, in Acts 9, remember Tabitha became sick and died. That's obviously a physical issue. And Peter came and prayed, remember? Restored her life. That's a physical sickness. But we also see the term used for faith in Romans 14. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. 1 Corinthians 8, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There's the idea that this could be physical, this could be uh, an issue of weak faith or or ill, so to speak, in their faith. James clearly involves those who value prayer. He he likely has some prayer warriors in mind as he communicates this. And then there's this concept of anointing with oil. And and there's two things that that's used for in Scripture. So we we need to look at those in the greater context. Number one, the, the anointing of oil was a symbol of being commissioned or consecrated for a task. We saw that when Samuel went to Jesse. And he ultimately anoints David to be the next king of Israel. But we also see it in the idea of addressing physical needs. In Jesus' story of the good Samaritan, he's what? He's pouring wine and oil on the wounds to cleanse and soothe the wounds. There's this idea of a medicinal procedure here. What we can see is that James places value on practical medical action and the power of prayer. It gets a bit bit harder here in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Is James really saying that any and all sick people will be healed if treated medically and properly prayed for? Maybe we answer that by asking another question. How well would church be attended every Sunday if we could systematically heal everyone who is sick or has disease? I would suspect there'd be no empty seats, right? The university hospital would be pretty quiet. In theory, you could also be sitting next to someone who's a couple thousand years old. 
It's interesting to think about in that perspective. I want to caution you against uh, thinking that this is transactional here. In other words, if you do this, then this happens. An argument could be made also that, that he's addressing here a weakness of character, a weakness of faith in that second idea of sickness. Because note in verse 5, it said, The Lord will raise him up and forgive any sins. Could James be addressing someone who is physically suffering because of sin? I mean, that's possible. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Therefore, confess and pray and be healed. So he's speaking of weakness of faith there, very possibly. It's, note, or it's good to note that the, the season here, James is writing this, uh, and he's following a season of ministry when sign gifts were at their peak. Remember, Jesus healed the sick, and it was further proof that he was truly the Messiah. And then he sent the disciples out, and they were healing and then as we went through the, the book of Acts together, we saw the times in the Acts of the Apostles and saw miraculous things happening. But there's also interesting things. Think of Paul. Paul talking about the, the thorn in his own flesh that he asked God to heal and God says no. It's an interesting thing to consider. In 2 Timothy, we see a couple interesting things. One is he keeps Luke near him all the time, his doctor friend, also scribe. But he also left Trophimus behind because of sickness. Oh, Paul, why didn't you just heal Trophimus? Why weren't the elders gathered around him? Second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I'd suggest to you that we cannot exactly be certain of what James is saying, but we know that he believes in the power of faithful prayer. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And why does James use the example of Elijah here? I mean, and, and the example of rain. Elijah is just another member of the human race, but he experienced a powerful and obvious answers to prayer. And so what, what can we learn about examining Elijah's weather-related prayers? It's pretty simple. He was praying about what God wanted. Remember James chapter 4, verse 3? You do not ask, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And I brought your mind to uh, Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. There's a progression here. And, and, and too often our prayers might, might be ineffectual and powerless. And it's because that we're praying about things that, that are, are not on mission with God. They're not what he wants. They're what we want. I've got to keep moving, James. 5 verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
This can be seen as another shift in focus uh, from James here. However, we can also see that he remains concerned about their spiritual well-being. Initially, I considered giving an entire message to this passage, but I chose not to because James has laid so much of the groundwork already for this issue. He's already addressed how not to treat others, uh, how to not be judgmental and, gr- and grumbling and complaining and, or, or not to give preference to the rich. And now he's saying, listen, if one should wander, someone should bring him back. Again, some discerning is necessary. You've got to judge the evidence, but at some point, somebody should bring him back. Save him from death and a multitude of sins. What is that? Is James suggesting that a believer can lose their salvation? I would say no. Remember, in the Jewish line of thinking, death and life were spoken of as tra- trajectories, the, a path they were on. The question here might become, do we love others enough to pursue them when they stray? It's not the loving believer who saves them. It's only Christ that offers that salvation. But the believers can help bring them back to the right course. And James concludes with, it covers a multitude of sins. Dr. Howard Henricks told a story of a young man who strayed from the Lord but was finally brought back by the help of a friend who really loved him. And when there was full repentance and restoration, Dr. Hendricks asked the Christian how it felt to be away from the Lord. The young man said it seemed like he was out to sea in deep water, in deep trouble, and all his friends were on the shore hurling biblical accusations at him about justice, penalty, and wrong. But there was one Christian brother who actually swam out to get me, who would not let me go. I fought him, but he pushed aside my fighting, grasped me, put a life jacket around me, and took me to shore. By the grace of God, he was the reason I was restored. He would not let me go. Isn't that cool? What a beautiful, beautiful thing. I wrote some notes in my Bible, and I believe it was from a Paul David Tripp message some time ago. But he just said of these last two verses, he asked the question, are you a consumer or are you a rescuer? In your faith, is it all about you? Is it all about how things are going for you? Or is there at some point in in your heart and life where you're saying, I want to rescue those who are astray? James is all about prayer. Remember, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. You don't have because you don't ask because you ask wrong. Pray for healing. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Ancient historians respected and admired James, a man of faithful prayer in the temple. Yes, God breathed these words into James through the Holy Spirit, and yet how cool is it that God would direct him to communicate about prayer because it was his personal conviction and passion. James was nicknamed Camel Knees. The man's knees were ugly and calloused because he did that which he instructed others to do, which was to pray. 
Remember back at verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Amazing connection between the two polar opposites, trouble and happiness. But whatever it is, we turn it over to God. We recognize he is God of the good days. He is God of the bad days. And we can come to him. Because he is faithful. As my father was wasting away from cancer, I remember going to him and saying, Dad, is this a matter of faith? Are we lacking faith in this? He said, Son, never doubt the ability of God to do anything, any healing he wants. But he said, more importantly, remember the certainty of our ultimate healing as believers through Christ. We are not to presume on God the specifics of what he intends for this life. We just aren't told. But we can trust him to be God in all circumstances. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are good. And we thank you that through faith in Christ, what he accomplished on the cross and leaving the tomb behind and inviting us by faith to be your children, that we can approach you, and that we can come to you in those times of, of struggle and, and come to you in prayer and just cry out to you. But we can also come to you in those times of joy and just come to you with praise because you are God of all of it. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, teach us to trust you, to come to you. And Lord, may we, as people who know and love Jesus, may we be people who move from being consumers, just taking what you offer us, to being rescuers, those who would seek others who have need. And God, may we do it all in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.